I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, but I believe that we are headed into rough waters in this world. In 2016, I shared messages from the Old Testament prophets Habakkuk and Malachi describing the situation in a culture that loved prosperity that came from God's blessing but refused to love God himself. The Bible revealed there that we were more like the nation of Judah than we wanted to admit. Today, we are at that point now where pain and difficulty are inevitable. Just this week, something that was unthinkable in 2016, dare I say even a year or two ago it was unthinkable, was warned by our own President of the United States just this week. He warned this, quote, we did talk about food shortages. This was in his meeting with NATO leaders. We did talk about food shortages and it's going to be real. The price of these sanctions is not just imposed upon Russia. It's imposed upon an awful lot of countries as well, including European countries and our country as well, unquote. In fact, we have lived far too long under the grace that comes from the fumes of a civilization that once said, in God we trust. We do not, in fact, trust in God, and the price will be steep. I'm not making political posturing here. In fact, I believe that no political policies will save us out of the nosedive we are in. Now, what we must do is to look at what happened back in the Garden of Eden, to learn Eden's lessons, and then reorder our lives according to to the will of God. So I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 24. Genesis 3, verses 7 through 24. This is going to tell us what's wrong with the world, and it's going to be painful. I'll tell you right now, it's going to be a painful message for about two-thirds of it. And then we're going to get to the hope that is found in the gospel. And then I hope that every one of us will come to a place of true brokenness before the Lord for the glory of the gospel of Christ. Will you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Genesis 3, 7 through 24. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Please have a seat. Well, in verses 7 through 13, the brokenness and blaming begin. What we have is a lost fellowship, first of all, with God. The exposure of nakedness is found in verse 7. We looked at it last week, the silly attempt to resolve it. Uh, They know they're naked. They feel this exposed nature of not just body but soul and they sew fig leaves together. What a ridiculous idea to resolve the problem. So what we have is an alienation of the man and the woman from one another and from the world and from God. And what we see is the beginning of guilt and shame before God's holy presence. Now, it's not like God can't see them, Right? hiding among the trees. But what they have, what is it that causes them to hide? Well, they have guilt. Guilt is the recognition that you've done wrong and you cannot undo it. You've done wrong and you cannot undo it. That's guilt. And they are experiencing at the same time shame, which is the recognition that you you yourself are defective because you have done wrong. Now, I realize that today, there are people who want to tell you how to overcome guilt and shame by saying you didn't do anything wrong and you shouldn't feel anything bad or defective about yourself because you're wonderful. You're fighting uphill, friend. No, no, no. We're all guilty. We've done wrong and we can't undo it. We all experience shame, the recognition that I am defective because I've done wrong. And that results in an alienation from God. I don't want to face him because he knows every detail. 
So Adam and Eve hide. Now, God's grace toward us is not as we would have it. What we would like for God to do is just leave us alone and overlook our sin, at least for a while, until we can all pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> let's, just, let's just have a little bit of a break here from God, right? That's not how God's grace works, though. He pursues us to face our sin squarely and to look to him for grace. And what's going to happen here in this text is God's going to ask four questions. We are introduced to the first question in verse 9. God asks the question, where are you? Not because he doesn't know where they are, but because he doesn't know where Adam is. It's a penetrating question for Adam to identify where he's at. God, in essence, asks that same question to every one of us as we evaluate our own spiritual condition. Where are you? Really, where are you? Adam, in verse 10, freely admits his fear and the reason for his fear. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was, I was afraid. So, he knows that he's naked, and so I hid myself. However, <clears throat> did you notice here that Adam cannot bring himself to connect his brokenness with his own sin. <laughs> you know, we can all admit to brokenness, but to be able to say, and I did it to myself, that's a bridge too far for most of us. This is a new self-centeredness that appears in humanity from which, may I say, we will not be changed until we get to glory. Fear begins because of the anxiety about being fully known. We don't want God to fully know, to, know, uh, know us. But do you notice God's tender pursuit of Adam? It's his fear that results in the relational breakdown and the desire not to communicate. Adam wants to hide rather than talk with God. Sin skews all relationships beginning with our relationship with God and then it spreads out. So that's lost fellowship with God. Now let's look at verses 11 and 12 where the blaming game begins. God asks two more questions. The first one is in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? This isn't the way things are supposed to be. God knows that no one told Adam he was naked. Again, it's a, a question of pursuit rather than a question of trying to get facts. Third question, again in verse 11, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? There's only one way, God's saying, that you could know this, that you were naked. There's only one way. Uh, you ate from the tree. Did you, did you eat from the tree? This is designed, God's pursuit of him in grace is designed to bring the man to a full admission of his sin. But the entrance of sin into Adam prevents that full confession, that full admission. Instead, what we get 
is a remarkable psychology of blaming. As crazy as it sounds, Adam's attempt to self-justify begins by blaming God. (laughs) It's God's fault. Do you see it there in verse 12? The man said, in answer to God's second and third questions, the woman whom you gave to be with me. That's God's fault. The woman you gave me. It's not my fault. God, you put this person, this companion here, and so it's, if it's anything, it's, it's your fault. And then he adds, she gave me the fruit. Adam now blames the woman too. It's Eve's fault. And then he says, and I ate. Almost as though it's a complete accident on his part. <laughs> now strangely, you and I can feel somewhat sympathetic toward the man here. After all, he did not touch the tree. The woman did. He did not eat it first. She did. She did not immediately die, and so it makes sense that uh, maybe what the serpent is saying has some truth to it. He wants to get along with his wife. How important, after all, could not eating from the tree be compared to joining with his wife in this act? Men the world over are seduced, cajoled, enticed, and invited by women to join in their plans. And men the world over think it's just too hard a thing to push back against those plans. In fact, Adam would be very happy with the current language about sin. Current language about sin. I fell into sin. It's just an accident. There's a lot of things that were going on, like God's got a problem, and there's other people around that are problem. But I, it was just, I ate. It was, it was an accident. Or more delicately, even now, the word sin is kind of too, too intense. I behaved inappropriately. <laughs> Would be perhaps the more modern way of expressing Adam's thinking here. Let's stop fooling ourselves. Sin doesn't just happen to us. I myself do it. You yourself do it. When people blame God, it's an attempt to deflect responsibility from themselves. When men blame their wives, it's an attempt to deflect their own fear, anger, alienation, and guilt. Listen, God did not give you men, God did not give you your wife in order to have someone to blame when something goes wrong. That's that's not why she's there. The woman, verse 13, is discipled by the man in this blaming. We get the fourth question here in verse 13. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman's response, like the man, she's learned from the man here in the answers. She is attempting to deflect responsibility, just as the man did. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The woman wants to believe that it is not her fault. She blames the serpent for making the command of God fuzzy 
and ill-defined. And strangely, we can feel sympathetic to the woman here also, can't we? After all, how could she know that there was a liar in the bush? She's attempting to portray herself as an innocent victim here, a victim of consequence. I was fooled. I couldn't have known better. Have sympathy for me. At his worst, the man is a buffoon, all too willing to abandon leadership for a place of merely getting along. He sees sin clearly enough, but he embraces it rather than runs from it because it's just too hard a thing to reject sin and the person he loves in the process. At her worst, the woman is a fool, believing wrong to be right because she takes someone's word for it, and she then proclaims her victimhood as a defense against guilt. She thinks that being deceived is actually a point of mitigation in her favor, when in fact, it's a point of condemnation. Sadly, each gender comes to the conclusion that the other gender is more guilty. There's some subtlety to how they think, though. Women tend to think that men are greater sinners than women, and men think that women are to blame for their sins. And so it has gone ever since Adam and Eve. Jesus was a great question asker. God here in Genesis 3 asks four questions. I went through the Gospels to look at some of the questions that Jesus asked people, and there was actually a beautiful website that talked about 137 questions Jesus asked. I picked up 31 of them. And I'm going to ask these questions right now, and, and, and the reason I bring them up is so that you can see that the very pointed nature of God's questions in the garden is the same kind of pointed nature with which Jesus asks questions. And it, it's all designed to bring us to the end of our sin, it isn't cruel, it isn't unloving, even though when we hear these words we feel like, oh, that sounds mean. It's not mean to get you to face what's real and that you are helpless and need help. And that was what was behind Jesus' questions. Here's some of his questions. Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? Why did you doubt? Why did you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Do you still not understand? How long shall I put up with you? What is it you want? What do you think? How will you escape being condemned to hell? Why are you thinking these things? Why are you so afraid? Are you so dull? Are you asleep? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? You are Israel's teacher, Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? 
Will you give me a drink? Do you want to get well? If you did not believe Moses' writings, how will you believe me? Does this offend you? You do not want to leave too, do you? Why are you trying to kill me? Why is my language not clear to you? Don't you know me even after I have been among you such a long time? Why question me? If I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Do you love me? We're made of the same cloth as Adam, as Eve, as the people that Jesus asked these questions about. The brokenness and blaming, the self-protection has not changed. In verses 14 through 19, the judgment of sin begins. Note that God does not question the serpent. God knows who the serpent is. God's purpose in asking the questions was to draw people back to him. Satan and his rebellious angels, listen, have no means of redemption. God does not love them like he loves us. Strangely, we never ask if that's unfair. It never occurs to us to ask the question, wait a minute, God has given the gospel for the human right. Why is it that rebellious angels never get a chance to be saved? God's the potter. He can do with what he makes whatever he wills. It never occurs to angels, by the way, to ask it either. No angel is saying, wait a minute, this is, an un- this is unfair. How is it you're saving human beings, but you're not saving rebellious angels? Nobody's asking that question. Rather, angels look upon human salvation with wonderment and worship. Now, this passage here where God curses the serpent is open to some very difficult interpretations. Is God judging snakes? The answer is yes. Is he judging Satan? The answer is yes. And I'll leave for you to tease out which is which in all of these things. But the judgment on the serpent is in relationship to God and the rest of nature, one of judgment. Because you've done this, direct culpability, you're cursed above the animals, you'll eat dust. But then in terms of judgment on the serpent in relationship to human beings, we have something that's a little broader, maybe a bigger impact, perhaps of eternal consequence. There will be enmity between you and the woman, enmity between your seed and her seed, and then there's this long prediction that's made that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Perhaps an early evidence of what is predicted in Jesus Christ's triumph by being Then there is a judgment on the woman, verse 15. Excuse me, verse 16. To the woman, pain in childbirth. Um, I hate to say this, but in this first sentence, 
there's deep intensity in the way the Hebrew is constructed. That's why it's, trans- I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Just the fact that this is kind of folded in a category where it begin- ends with pain in the first line, begins with pain in the second line, says it's designed to point to an intensity there. And then it says in the second half, the ESV reads, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Uh, you'll see if you have an ESV, uh, there's a footnote there, and it says that your desire shall be toward your husband, but he shall rule over you. I think that's the better translation. Your desire shall be toward your husband, and then the word but, instead of the word and, but he shall rule over you, I think is the best way to render this. The reason is that In human relationships, there will be a desire for the husband to express some leadership, but to do so only exactly as you want him to lead. (laughs) And he's not going to do that. And so that's going to create conflict. There's distortion. He won't lead correctly. And even when he does, there will be doubt about that leadership. So what is part of this curse is frustration between husband and wife becomes the default. The ideal of that perfect harmony and intimacy, naked and not ashamed, has been shattered. Shattered. Listen to me, those of you who are married and those of you who want to be married. Our spouses will never be all that we would wish or hope. We cannot do what only God can do. But there are people who use that truth, your spouse can never be what you would wish or hope, and twist it to say, well, if my spouse can never be what I, they, uh, what I could wish or hope, I guess, why should I even try? I don't even try to change myself. No, that's just making an excuse. Because what you can do is have God work in you, and God can work in your spouse. But the idea of marrying someone in order to change them is a fool's errand. Frustration between husband and wife becomes the norm, the default, the ideal has been shattered. Now, verses 17 through 19, we have a judgment on the man. Adam is given the reason for his judgment, just as uh, the serpent was in verse 14. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. He's given the reason. Cursed is the ground. The word ground is Adama. Adam comes from Adama, and Adama is cursed because of Adam, who came from the dust of Adama, chapter 2, verse 7. The whole creation... Paul's commentary on this in Romans 8, the whole creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Because of the entrance of Adam's sin into the world, every atom, A-T-O-M, has been distorted, messed up, fouled up. The whole creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Just as the woman gets pain, the man gets an identical judgment. In pain, you will eat of the ground all the days of your life. There's two judgments there. One is, in pain, you eat. 
the very things you eat to live will also kill you. And all the days of your life, what that means is there's a limit to the days of your life. You're not going to live forever. What kind of pain? Verse 18, thorns and thistles are brought forth. Weeds, weeds everywhere. And by thorns and thistles, that's not just literal, but it's figurative too. It includes germs and viruses and bugs and weeds and mosquitoes that kill millions, billions from malaria. And work is hard. The sweat of your face you shall eat bread, verse 19. Pain is a part of work. It doesn't mean that there can't be some accomplishment in work, but there will be pain in every bit of work. And the hardship will continue until you die. You will eat by the sweat of your face till you return to the ground. Adam loses his freedom from pain. He loses a big part of his significance in work. In fact, have you ever about work that sometimes your work is just a rock has rolled down the hill and your job that day is to roll that rock back up to where it started. And you go to work the next day and it's rolled back down and your job that day is to roll it back up to where it started and you're just like, this is really not fun. <laughs> that, that's what we get. Worse, the joy of intimacy with his creator is lost. So ongoing trouble is part of life now. Life is so daily, isn't it? Trouble in relationships, husband and wife at the very beginning, and it filters out into all kinds of relationships. Think of the troubles Trouble with marriage, trouble with children. By the way, the pain in childbirth likely means more than just the pain of birthing children. It means the pain of raising them and the pain of dealing with them as adults. There's trouble with God, trouble with fears, trouble with disappointments, trouble with communication, trouble with blaming, justifying, frustration, trouble with pain, illness, disease, and death. And what do we want to say is the reason? Why, God, do you allow this? Don't blame God. Blame Adam. Consider the clear statements of Scripture acknowledging our true troubled position. First, in the general case of humanity, as I mentioned, Paul's section here at the end of Romans 8, I think is his commentary on Genesis chapter 3. And notice the three places where he talks about creation. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So there's a, a longing that all of creation is facing for a consummation, something to be undone. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. And then verse 23, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The issue is, every part of creation is creaking and groaning, and it's been doing it ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And it's intense pain, like the pain of childbirth. 
But not only that, do you see verse 23 there? You might say, well, wait a minute. Don't we get some respite from this? Don't we get some escape from it if we trust Jesus? In other words, isn't the gospel that if I ask Jesus to be my Savior, he'll make everything right and everything will be harmonious and wonderful and my marriage will be perfect and my work is going to be fun and I'm not ever going to get sick and I'll have all the wealth that I ever need and it's just going to make everything great? No, that is not the gospel. Not only the creation. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we're saved. We belong to Jesus. Groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, the uniform testimony of the New Testament is that those who are believers in Jesus are not just subject to all of the whims and problems of the curse of creation, but by the mere fact that we belong to Jesus, we are going to experience even more pain, even more difficulty. Isn't that good news? Look at it. Jesus said, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace, but in the world you'll have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ not only to believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So, we see that the brokenness and blaming begin we see the judgment of sin begins. I'm so glad I've got some time here. Remember how I told you, first two-thirds, bad. Gonna get to some good news. Let's get to some good news, brothers and sisters. Verses 20 through 24, the gracious provision of God for sinners begins. Verse 20, Adam's naming of his wife means that there is still joy in this world. It's why unbelievers, by the way, can be happily married. There is such a thing as common grace. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Eve's name suggests that life is valuable, mother of all living. Verse 21, God makes clothing for Adam and Eve. They can't do it themselves. God himself does it for them. And the clothing is made from skins of animals. Listen, animals died, blood was shed to allow Adam and Eve not be naked. There's a principle that will be at work when, for example, John the Baptist says as of Jesus when he's beginning his public ministry, John the Baptist goes, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verses 22 through, oh, in verses 22 through 24, uh, God acts to prevent our troubles from becoming eternal ones. This is interesting. Man now has information that is going to trouble him all his days. He's got the knowledge of good and evil. And that's not a good thing in the hands of wicked people. 
One only has to look at uh, the remarkable ingenuity and creativity of criminals. You think, man, if they just spent all that ingenuity and creativity on, on less uh, evil pursuits, they'd actually be something. No, that's not how the human mind works. There's an additional problem, though. The tree of life is there in the garden. And if the man and woman eat of that tree, they will live forever, but forever in their sin. Now, at first blush, this sounds like a really good late-night telemarketing commercial. It's the tree of life. Three easy payments of 1995, and you will live forever. Right? I mean... This idea, wow, and we spend literally billions of dollars trying to prolong our lives and make our lives live longer and as though that's the be-all, end-all if I can just live one more day and one more day after that and one more day after that. That's the big goal of life is to live one more day. Eating of the tree of life is a horror difficult to contemplate and it would make a great sci-fi movie sometime but it would be without any happy ending. So don't think that living forever in this present world is a good thing to wish for. It would be a horror, a nightmare. So God sent the man and the woman out of the garden. He drove them out of the garden. This is worse than you might think. Because the garden was an already established place that God himself had prepared. Check out Genesis 2 verse 8 for that. God prepared the garden, had it all ready, had all the stuff there. Adam and Eve just had to, you know, enjoy it. He'd already made trees and plants there to eat for them. Now, what happens by being sent out of the garden, they have to go carve out for themselves a place to live in raw creation. You guys ever seen the the TV show Into the Wild? It's where people are being told, you know, here, you get five or six things and then you get to go into the wild and whoever stays out there the longest gets, you know, a couple bucks, right? And the story is how these people survive and all of this. Well, Adam and Eve have been sent into the wild, except there's no walkie-talkie to say, hello, helicopter, come send me back, I'm, I'm sick, or, or help me, I've run out of food. There isn't any of that. They're out there on their own and the creation has become a far more dangerous place than it had been before sin. Now it has germs. It has deadly animals. It has plants like poison ivy. It has disasters like fires and floods and earthquakes. And now Adam is sent out and it's his job to work the Adama from which he came, but that work is hard and often fruitless and painful. But it was necessary for God to do this so that Adam and Eve would not live forever in their sin. God loves us too much to leave us here in this sin-cursed world in the way we are. Do you know how much he loves you? He doesn't want you to be here like this. And then to prevent them from doing the obvious thing. You know, Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden. When when things get hard, when they run out of food, when they get sick, what do you think the temptation might be? You know, back in that garden, 
We can go eat that tree of life. It'd be awesome. I could sneak back into the garden, take a bite, you know, be great. So to prevent them from doing that, head back into the garden, eat of the tree of life, God sent, it says in verse 24, cherubim. Now don't think precious moments chubby figures. These are warrior angels. Warrior angels with a flaming sword that turns every way around to guard the way to the tree of life. We see similar descriptions of God's army angels in Ezekiel and Revelation. God is so loving that he would not allow this rotted condition to be our permanent state even though it would look very attractive to you and me just as it would have looked to Adam and Eve. God has a determined plan to rescue us. He himself provides the sacrifice that we may be clothed in his righteousness. He reveals a plan in chapter 3, verse 15, where the, Satan, where the serpent's head would be crushed and the seed of the woman would heal, would be bruised. And what do we have as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when he came into this world, lived a perfect life, and died a death that paid for our sin and rose from the dead and is preparing a place for us forever that is rid of all of this curse? What do we read? We read that the first heaven and the first earth has passed away. And the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more mourning or crying or pain or death. Paul says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Sin reigned in death, we reign with Jesus. <laughs> doesn't say life reigns with Jesus, it says we reign with Jesus. <laughs> this is undeserved grace, brothers and sisters. And this is what we aim for. We don't aim for our best life now. We aim for a city whose builder and maker is God. And everything we do right now should have the passion of knowing and worshiping and loving and serving this God who even right now is preparing a place for you and me. I mentioned twice now that Paul's Chapter in Romans chapter 8 is a, is a commentary on Genesis 3. Let me just kind of run through some of the verses and kind of comment on how they connect with Genesis 3. I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This world is full of suffering, but it's not worth comparing with the glory that's going to happen. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and uh, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God has a plan. He subjected creation to this futility in order that we might have something even better. 
we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Yeah, obvious, right, after looking at this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's our eager hope, friends. Not our best life now, but the world that's coming. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Listen, there is an issue of faith that you're going to have to face. If you're not a Christian here today, you have a decision that you got to make. Is all this stuff sounding like the Holy Spirit is saying to you, this guy is speaking the truth? Then what you need to do is trust what Jesus has done for you to forgive you of your sin. And it's not something you can see. You don't get to see the glory before you get there. Contrary to all of the wonderful heavenly tourism books that are written, they're just made-up books, friends. The only person that I know that's been there are the people that wrote the Bible. Some of the characters in the Bible. To try to say, okay, I spent 20 minutes in heaven, now follow me and I'll... No. It's something that we don't see but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Brothers and sisters, patience is the order of the day. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. We're not alone. The Holy Spirit is here, and he is praying for us in groanings, even where we the words to know what to pray for. He's interceding before the Father's throne on our behalf in the midst of this cursed world. He's praying for you and me. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit's always going to pray the will of God. Amen? <laughs> and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's up to something good, friends. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen, God is up to a plan that was predestined in order for us to be like Jesus and we can call Jesus brother Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Get this. That's all past tense. So from God's point of view, it's as though it's already happened. Ephesians 2, we're already seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a done deal secured by the blood of Jesus at the cross. What should we say to these things? Paul asks a whole bunch of questions now. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Not only is the Holy Spirit praying for us, but Jesus Christ, God the Son, is interceding on our behalf as we traverse this sin-cursed world. We got the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ himself praying before the Father's throne, help him, Lord, help him. <laughs> Amen, I'm so glad for that. 
who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, including food shortages that might happen, including whatever dangers are on our way, nor height, nor depth, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh God, open our hearts to the sinfulness of sin and break us to a place of confession and brokenness before you. Help us not to think that it's the other guy's fault or worse, your fault. Help us instead to say, yes, I am the sinner. Be merciful to me. And by your power, Lord, open our eyes to the glories of the gospel of Jesus who died for us and raised from the dead so that we may be brothers with him forever reigning with him in your kingdom. We long for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.